The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this week um, is Earth Care Week in the Sangha's associated with um, Spirit Rock, with IMS, with Gaia House. The, um, this, this Earth Care Week, I want to just get, tell you how this came about. I think it was in 2013, there was a, a meeting of the, um, the Vipassana teachers, the international Vipassana teachers, so the teachers from Switzerland and England and, um, and all around the, um, the U.S., um, we all came together um, for a, a meeting to talk about teaching and what's up in the world and how to support our sanghas. And the question about climate change was, was big for us in that particular meeting. And the idea for this week of spending a week focusing on how uh, the teachings of the Buddha, how we can be, be exploring the questions around um, caring for the earth, caring for each other in, in our Dharma talks. And so that's where the idea for Earth Care Week came up. It was four years ago, and um, Gil um, and I committed to doing that for this first week of October each year. So the talk this evening is some reflections fr- from, you know, some ref- I'll start with some reflections about how some of the Buddhist teachings might help us to navigate some of the concerns um, around our planet, the concerns facing our planet, the concerns facing us with respect to climate change, global warming, pollution, overfishing, all of the, so many different concerns that face us um, with our planet. As I was reflecting about this today, I realized, you know, one of the reasons this is so challenging on Tuesday morning, I talked about overconsumption and that, you know, that that really is kind of where all of this, all of the issues kind of come back to is the issue of overconsumption. And, um, and yet it's hard to see overconsumption and waste, I'd say, both of those two, you know, those two pieces. Um, and, and yet it's hard to see how one person impacts this. You know, that, that, that's, that's, I think, one of the issues is, is being, um, it being so hard for our minds to take in that one person either will make a difference or has a, a measurable impact. And in fact, kind of paradoxically, there's a, or maybe ironically, I should say, there's a, a, a teaching in the, in the suttas where the Buddha encourages his son to... Um, to cultivate meditation like the earth, to cultivate meditation like water. Because, as he says, Rahula is the name of his son. Rahula, develop meditation that's like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too develop meditation that is like the earth. Implying that essentially, you know, when 
unclean things are put on the earth, when either clean or unclean things are put on the earth, the earth can hold it. The earth can process it. And likewise, he said the same of water, of fire, of air. And, and I just think this is kind of ironic because um, this is exactly, we, we, we see now, we know now, based on uh, understanding how, how much we've been doing this, that it does impact the earth. It does impact the earth. It's that the earth has some kind of, and water both, I think, have some kind of um, way to deal with a certain level of impurities, you know. Uh, and, and perhaps at the time of the Buddha, that was, that was possible. And yet, that is not happening <laughs> right now. And so, you know, looking at how we, can, how we can reflect on this impact, the impact that we have on the earth as individuals and as a collective. One, one um, quote that I want to read to you, just as a little bit of an inspiration here, um, because it is so hard to feel like if I do something, what difference will it make? If I, if I choose to consume less or take more care with what I dispose of, what difference will that make? And um, I found this quote by, um, by an um, environmentalist, environmentalist, Paul Hawken. And this was in the Tricycle magazine. Some of you may have seen this. There was an interview with him. He's apparently a Buddhist, and Tricycle magazine interviewed him. And uh, the, the Tricycle asked him, even if we know how to reverse global war- warming, what's to say that we'll actually muster the collective willpower to make it happen? I think this is a question we all have. How can we, how can we get everybody on board with this? And he responded, it seems that only a very small percentage of the population has to change to influence a larger apathetic population. The poster child for this is LGBT rights. In 2010, it was an issue that people could run against in order to get elected to Congress. Two years later, those same people had their tail between their legs and wouldn't talk about it because they knew they might lose the election. How did that shift happen? I don't think humanity can shift without a lot of hard work. But it doesn't take 100% or 90% or even 50% to make the change. It only takes 5 or 10% of dedicated people to change the balance of the whole. So I found that inspiring, that, that possibility that perhaps a smaller group of dedicated people who are willing to speak, who are willing to act, that there can be a, a balance, a shift that happens in the, in the larger in the larger uh, community. And so as we begin to look at the impact, the effect of overconsumption, of waste, I think what we see is suffering. And this is really the, the place where the Buddha pointed to as how we, you know, what, what, we, what we need to work with, what we need to look at. 
And so the suffering, the suffering of the overconsumption, the suffering of the waste is creating, you know, it's creating issues of um, um, food production, food distribution issues. I mean, as, as global warming increases, we have the, the issues of, of the, the whole planet kind of is based around, the, the food distribution systems are based around, around um, uh, where the food is grown. And as, as, that, as the pl- planet warms, that may change. And so you know, th- there's those kinds of issues. People will not be able to be fed. And, and now, even now, there's, there's issues of so much... Um, um, dry land in various parts of Africa that there's so much hunger and um, and then there's the the global warming the rising sea levels the more, the flooding the, the the hurricanes that we've been experiencing this summer the the, the understanding that I, I understand is that the warmer seas tend to produce stronger hurric- hurricanes and so more devastation so rising sea levels more intense storms all of this produces human suffering, and then species extinction happening. Uh, There's one um, study I looked at recently that said, this was in December 2016, uh, Professor John Wiens said, nearly half the species on the planet are failing to cope with global warming the world is already experiencing. Half the species on the planet are struggling to cope with global warming. So there's a lot of suffering out there. And opening to suffering, the first noble truth, this, this is the Buddha pointed to suffering as the first noble truth and, and asked us to, to open our hearts to it, to open to the, uh, the experience of suffering. I think it's partly because it's such a big problem, a big issue, it's so vast that's what I mean by big. It's, it's vast. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And it's also hard for us to, to feel like one person can have any impact. It's such a small drop. One person, we feel that one person's effect is such a small drop that, that there's a tendency, I think, to not look at the suffering, to be in denial about it, to say, well, I can't do anything about it, so I won't think about it. And we know from our own practice, our own... I'm going to draw some parallels here, and I don't know how accurate they are, but I'm just going to just ride with me on this and see, see how it goes. Um, in our own practice, in our own exploration of our own suffering in our own system, when we notice anger arising in our system, when we notice frustration or confusion, the Buddha encourages us to look at it to open to it, not to repress it, not to deny it, but also not to act out on it. And so that there's this kind of middle ground where we open to the suffering. And I think many of you have seen this, the power of this, the power of what happens when we open to suffering and don't repress it, neither repress it nor kind of buy into it, so in, in opening to something like anger, for example, we explore what is the human experience of anger? What is the human experience? What does it feel like? How am I with this? And that's 
opening to it. It's not repressing it, but it's also not kind of following its stories and following its, its habits and patterns. And so we, we can see, we can start to see the value of that in, in, in our own system, in our own uh, mindfulness practice, as we start to recognize how that helps the mind to be able to be more at ease when there is anger, to be more skillful in how we work with anger, and to, be, um, to, to actually begin to see it transform. And so this is the medicine the Buddha offered us around suffering. He pointed to some of how it's put together, the craving that causes the suffering. And, and I'll propose, too, that the craving that causes suffering is that same craving is responsible for the overconsumption and the waste. And so the, you know, the looking at our own, our own experience here can be useful in terms of exploring that, exploring how, how am I overconsuming. But in any case... The, the opening to the suffering begins to help us to understand how things happen, what's going on inside our own system. And as that happens, as we begin to understand what's going on, our system begins to adjust. It begins to let go of those things that are creating that pain. It begins to release those patterns and those habits. And we experience a shift and a change and begin to to experience transformation. And so what I'd like to propose is that opening to the suffering that's happening around the planet, actually consciously almost leaning into it, taking time every week or even every day to even just reflect on what's happening and the suffering that's happening. You know, we can do this in a number of ways. We can do this by reading, reading articles. We can watch um, documentaries. We can just expose ourselves to the suffering that's happening in our planet. And what I'd ex- ex- um, suggest when you do that is use mindfulness while you do that. I mean, it's essentially what we're doing here is, is uh, you know, it's like almost like a collective needs to start looking at the suffering of our planet, the suffering that this is, this is creating for other species, for, for our, for, for us as human beings. And some, some of the people are actively looking at you know, what are the causes? What's going on? And so kind of doing some of that investigation. But I think all of us who have the interest in exploring suffering in our own hearts also need to be willing to open our hearts to the suffering on the larger scale. I don't know exactly how transformation will happen from that. But I do know that if we don't pay attention to the suffering, that if we simply keep denying it and ignoring it, just as in our own hearts when we deny or ignore the patterns and habits of suffering, those habits and patterns just do their thing. They keep going. And if we don't, as a community, as, as, uh, as a species, begin to look at that suffering, 
whatever's creating that suffering is just going to keep going. And so I think, you know, the Buddha's teaching on opening to suffering is, that's the first step in our own transformation. And I think it also may be a big step in opening to and helping, supporting that 5% or 10% begin to, to, to shift the, the, the narrative of, of our culture and our, and our world and in, the human, in the human realm at least. Shift the narrative around, around climate change. Shift the narrative around being careful in our consumption and our waste. One of the things that I see happens, again, for myself internally as I begin to open to the suffering in my own experience. So noticing anger and noticing confusion and noticing self-hatred. That over time, the, the heart that can open to that and that can open to the suffering of other human beings in their, in their own being tied into knots, their own confusion and struggle, is that um, a natural response of that is compassion. That there's a, a way that when our hearts start to open to suffering, that open heart that meets suffering resonates or responds to suffering with a heart that wants to do something to alleviate that suffering. And that is what compassion is. Compassion is an open heart that is not afraid of suffering, that doesn't resist it, repress it, reject it, or somehow divide from it. That's another thing that sometimes happens, and we can see that sometimes. You know, I, I see it in my own in my own mind when something happens, like, like you know, the the um, the hurricanes. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's a little part of my mind, I have to work, I have to work to remember that could be me next time. I have to work to think, oh, I, to, to not just think, oh, poor people, you know, you, you poor people over there, I, I, feel, I feel for you, I'll, I'll donate, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do something. But, but there's still some way in which the, I have to remind myself, this is not separate from me. This might be me. I could have been there. It might be the earthquake in California next time. So, you know, just, just that's another movement that sometimes happens around seeing suffering, is that we separate into a kind of a, oh, it's happening to them. And it feels like we're, we're feeling some kind of sympathy. But it's at the same time, there's a part of our mind that thinks, Either thank goodness it's not happening to me or won't happen to me. You know, that somehow our minds have this delusion that it won't happen to me. And so the, the compassion holds the suffering and understands that it might be me. It might be me next time. And compassion is a beautiful emotion because it does have that motivation to act, that motivation to take some kind of action to alleviate the suffering. And again, I don't know, I don't know what this looks like with, with the this thing, with problems on the scale that we have with respect to global warming. I don't exactly know what this looks like, but I do 
feel that if we start to open our hearts to the suffering and become honest witnesses of what's happening. I think that's our first step, to become honest witnesses of what's happening, not, not denying it at all. Then I think what, what maybe starts to happen as we can hold that, as we can hold that honestly without resistance, then I think each of us may find some place or some way that we want to respond. And maybe that 10% will, will, will gain some traction, gain some momentum. So this, I think the scale of this, as I said, it can be so overwhelming. And so just I find for myself in, again, as, an, as a kind of analogy for my, you know, looking at how can we look at the practice internally? How might that support us in looking at this, these bigger problems? Is that, so with big, overwhelming issues internally, when we have something that comes up and it's just like so overwhelming that it's really hard to be mindful of, what I usually encourage myself and others to do is to, Meet it for just a moment, like take it in really small doses, and then consciously acknowledge it and, and, and set it aside. And so, you know, so overwhelming um, feelings coming up, a self-hatred arising where the mind just cannot meet it. It'll just get pulled back into the, the overwhelm of it. I encourage people to, you know, oh, I see you, self-hatred. And, yeah, you can sit in the room with me, but I'm going to put my attention on something else right now. And so what you can explore, if it feels overwhelming, is just some small doses. Just give yourself small doses, but regularly expose yourself to the suffering of what's happening. Regularly just remind yourself of that. And as you're doing that, feel into how you are with that. Open to, the, open to how you are with it. Do you want to close down? Do you want to not think about it? I feel like the, the, our community, the Buddhist communities, one of the big things we can offer is the willingness to look at what's happening with open eyes and open hearts. And that will take some skill and some work. It's not, it's not going to happen immediately that we can do that. But I think it's something that we can all take steps towards, opening to that suffering. And then a couple other pieces, and then I want to open it up to, um, to, to conversation, reflections from, you know, what are your thoughts about this? And the Buddha's teachings encourage us to take care of each other, to be conscious about how we affect each other. So this is, this is actually a pretty big part of his teaching. It's not, it's not as much in what we talk about. Often, often we talk about, you know, the, the meditation and how to look inside of our own hearts and minds. But th- there's many teachings, a number of places where the Buddha talks about exploring and recognizing how do your, how do your actions affect other people. In a teaching to his son, he explicitly talked about this. He said, 
before you do something, think about how this is going to affect you and how it's going to affect other people. And reflect on whether it's going to cause any harm. And if it is, if you, if you, in reflecting on what you're going to do, thinking about how it's going to affect both you and others, you don't see that it's going to cause harm, then you're, go ahead, do it. But if you see it's going to cause harm, then wait. Don't do it. Just refrain from doing that. And he encouraged a continued reflection while you're acting. Look at whether it is causing harm. And if it is, stop. If it isn't, continue. It's fine to continue. And he said, continue reflecting after you have done an action. Think about, did this cause harm? And if it did, then undertake restraint in the future. And so to me, this is pointing to, first of all, it's pointing to really looking at how we affect each other. It's bringing right. And, and this is a teaching he gave to his son when his son was seven years old. So this is, a, this is a teaching that a seven-year-old can understand. And yet it's pretty challenging, you know, when we think about it, you know, how much reflection that takes. But, but from a very young age, he wanted his son to think about how are your actions going to affect other people? Is it going to create affliction? Is it going to make somebody else suffer? And also think about yourself, he said. Is it going to make you suffer? So to hold both yourself and others in our actions. I like this teaching partly because um, that last one, you know, so basically he's encouraging his son. He didn't use these words, but he's encouraging his son to think about so what am I doing and is it going to hurt other people in a way he's encouraging his son to think about what's my intention here what am I planning on doing and is it going to make somebody else miserable is it going to make me miserable and so you know reflecting on that reflecting on intention and then looking at the impact so this is a big a big um some big buzzwords in, in various circles these days, looking at intention and impact and looking at, you know, so you intend a particular something as you're acting. And sometimes what happens when we, when we act is we get a different response. You know, we, we, we act in a way, we, we're doing something and we're not, not thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're acting with the goodness of our heart. We're thinking about doing something um, to help others and yet, what well, the feedback we get is that it created some kind of suffering. It created some, some, some distress. And so to me, what the Buddha is encouraging his son to do here is to look at the intention and then not only that, look at the impact. And to me, what the encouragement here is, is if the impact creates suffering, kind of the subtext here, is if the impact creates suffering, you know, it, the, the instructions aren't beat yourself up and tell yourself you're a horrible person. They are undertake restraint in the future and, I think, make amends. But I think also implicit in that is see if you can understand what you didn't understand. See if you can understand what was going on there. You thought you were going to do something that was going to, going to be helpful or going to be in a direction of, of adding benefit to the world or to this community. And that wasn't the result. So what 
what was not understood. And so here's a place to, to look at our actions and the results and then, and then reflect on that impact. Be curious about it when we see that, that harm is resulting. And so as a species, we are now seeing that harm is resulting from our actions that we did not think were going to cause harm. From many of our actions around, you know, consuming or, um, you know, like, like, like the example from, from um, years ago, you know, th- when the Buddha was, was teaching his son at, a, at another time, you know, oh, develop meditation like the earth because the earth doesn't mind if you throw ugly things on it. It, it transforms them, kind of like a compost heap. Well, it only goes so far. And so at this point, our, our species is understanding the impact. So collectively, we're beginning to know that there's an impact. And so beginning to understand that, then looking at our intention in terms of acting where we might contribute to that impact. Beginning to look at that and be curious about what maybe, maybe we can do to not add to that impact in, in even our small, hopefully, 5 or 10% way that can create the, the change, create the, the shift. At one point, when I was uh, in, co- in college, there was a textbook I was reading on the environment. I was, took a course on environmental science. And, and in that textbook, it, it said something like, you know, it, it, isn't actually hard. it isn't actually impossible for us to decide to stop polluting. It just simply would take every single person on the planet deciding they're not going to do that anymore. And that sounds like a tall order. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, if we can see or recognize, reflect that it is possible for one person to do this. So maybe it's possible for everybody to decide to do this. Maybe. Maybe. And maybe the 5%, 10% analogy can help us get over the hump. So the, the, the other kind of thing I want to, um, to point to is, that, uh, is an example from uh, a naturalist who this lesson around intention and impact was very um, powerful for him. As a child, as an 11-year-old child, he was, um, his name is David Brower, um, and he was interested in nature from the time he was a child, and he had a collection of chrysalids, the, the little um, um, cocoons that the butterflies emerge from. And and one day, so he, he was watching them every day, looking at the chrysalids and seeing, are they going to emerge as butterflies? And, and, um, and one, one time, one, the, he started noticing that one of them had a crack in it. And so he saw that, and he watched what happened, and he saw that the, 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 the 
the butterfly began to like push open the, the chrysalid and worked really hard and the abdomen distended and like pumped. There's all this fluid that pumped out and, and then the butterfly was just really working hard to, to open that, to get out of that chrysalis. And after that all happened, the butterfly, you know, flew away. But as the, the next few chrysalids started to open, he saw the crack. He felt so much compassion for them because it looked like so much suffering for that first butterfly to go through. And so he started easing open the cracks. He thought he'd make himself useful and help them out of the, chrysalis, of the, of the cocoons. And what happened is that they slid out of the cocoons and walked around for a while and died because it was the effort of trying to get out of the cocoon that made the fluid pump out of the of the body of the abdomen and flowed over the wings which was necessary in order for them to fly and he said from that lesson he learned that what might be seen as kind and seen as, like his intention was to to lessen suffering and yet it actually had the opposite effect. It created harm for him to do that. Now the lesson isn't beat yourself up there, tell yourself you're a bad little boy. I mean, what he understood there was that there was something he didn't understand. What he began to see is I didn't, that, that he didn't know how it worked. And that there's, there's processes at work in the world that need to unfold. And so this is another place for us to look at. I, you know, and again, I don't know exactly how this might be, but there may be times when in this whole process of looking at what the planet is undergoing in the large scale, that some parts of it might be, some parts of the suffering might need to be necessary for the planet to kind of recalibrate and find a new normal, even as we're trying to, to, to tamp down the, the, um, the, the carbon dioxide we're putting in the air. And so, you know, I think we really all need to, to be interested in, in learning, in understanding. So the other piece is, that I want to point to is, as I said, the Buddha really emphasized relationship, practice in relationship. And another place this comes up is in the precepts, is in the... Um, the ethical conduct, you know, looking at refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from false speech, refraining from um, causing harm through sexuality. Well, the first two, refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given. I think we can explore those in, in our consumption. The the precepts themselves are about not actively killing and stealing. Those are th- that's that's the, the understanding of the precepts, to refrain from 
taking life and to refrain from taking what is not given. And yet we can also explore perhaps a little more subtlety in those precepts. Refraining from, um, perhaps refraining from as much meat consumption in, in um, also will support what I understand is um, that if we were to diminish our meat consumption by 50%, it would reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by a tremendous amount. So, you know, so refra- you know, reducing, reducing meat consumption might be a, a way to explore that first precept a little bit. And then the other piece is, you know, looking at the second precept, refraining from taking what's not given, looking at that question of consumption. Is this consumption something that I really need? You know, is this satis- just satisfying some desire for pleasure? Or is it kind of supporting me to live a life that moves in the direction of greater ease and peace and freedom? And so, you know, looking at our consumption and looking at our waste along the lines of this, of this second precept that, you know, the, the Buddha encouraged us to look at non-harming in our relationships. And I think we can explore that piece of, of um, practice with each other in community as well, maybe extending our, our thoughts about what those precepts what might mean. You know, we could look at... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has has expressed those precepts in in a in a very beautiful way, and we do I do I do want to take care with with um, with that because you know the precepts there's there's different levels to the precepts I think you know the the precepts themselves are expressed in terms of what might be you know what's what is achievable. You know, what's possible for us as human beings? How we might be able to live. Refraining from killing another being. Intentionally killing another being. Refraining from taking something that belongs to another person, that is not offered to us. These are, these are, are possible ethics that we can actually live up to. And you know, extending the precepts out to, uh, you know, refraining from any form of activity that would create, um, that, would, that would cause any being to die. I mean, that is almost impossible to live, to live by. We take, we take antibiotics. We, you know, we... Um, um, t- just in in our um, in our life, beings beings die. So the the expressions that Thich Nhat Hanh offers for the precepts, I think they're very beautiful as an aspiration or as a direction. But I think we need to take care to try to to not hold ourselves up to that as as being if I'm if I'm not living up to that aspiration, then. I'm, I'm, you know, failing in ethical conduct because those, those, um, I think it's, it's a worthy aspiration and yet um, 
we need to to be able and willing to give ourselves um, a break, essentially. Because I don't think there's any way to... to li- the way we live, I mean, there's cer- certain monks, for example, who will not drive a car because of the bugs that it kills. So, you know, just that, that level of... Of um, or or even dig in the dirt because it might kill a worm, <laughs> you know. So so things like that. It, we, we are not going to be able to um, to live. To even our vegetable growing will, you know, the way that we do that with the with the pesticides, you know, it it kills beings. And so the the you know the the way that we we can aspire to to doing things that will support refraining from killing as many beings as possible. But I, I want to, to be careful not to try to hold that up as what I would call a precept, which is essentially a precept is something that we try to live our lives by. And the others I think of more as aspiration or an aim or a direction. In a way, the precepts, each of the precepts is paired with a, an aspiration you know, the precept to refrain from killing is paired with the aspiration of compassion. The precept to refrain from stealing is paired with the aspiration to contentment and honesty. So, you know, that, that we, we can't really, you know, commit ourselves to say, I, I will be compassionate. You know, we can't, we can't demand that of ourselves because our hearts are not quite that amenable to control. But we can commit ourselves to the action. I will refrain from actively killing a living being. You know, even that, even that, if every, this, this is one of my, my wishes, you know, if every person on this planet were to decide they would not kill another human being, not to speak of bugs and worms and things. If every person on the planet decided they would not kill another human being, we would have a completely different world. And maybe that world would open to more harmony and sharing and caring and recognizing the impact that we have on each other. So those are just some of my reflections. I'm curious what your thoughts are about this topic. I only talked briefly about the consumption piece. I talked about that on Tuesday. So that's been recorded if you're interested in further reflections about consumption. Any, any thoughts? Yeah. And why don't we use the mic? Some of what you were talking about kind of opened me up to a, a little bit of an awareness of how I, I think in relationship to this, kind of straddle the aversion and the craving of um, two different identities around guilt and how I'm either kind of trying to cling to this idea of being a good citizen of the world and doing all that I can and not needing to look at that anymore, not needing to check that or 
own any more responsibility around that. And then, um, because if I do, the um, the guilt can really pour in, kind of what yeah. you alluded to, yeah. you know. And yeah. so, oh, I'm, you know, not doing enough, and now I feel like I have to do everything. Oh, it's so interesting how identities just seem to to weigh off of each other, you know. So, you know, one identity, one identity, we we want we want that identity. And yet it's nearly impossible to live up to that identity. And so then we like we crash into the other side and it's like there's the guilt and the shame. And paradoxically, you know, it's like letting go of both sides, there's room for a lot more navigation and a lot more open-hearted connection with what's actually going on. I've, I've seen this, this dynamic at work with, with patterns in my own system. And I think also there's a lot of us having this, this as well. And, and, and we may, at that point, it's like give up. It's like, oh, it's too big. And then, and yeah, so, so really I, it, looking, at, looking at the fact that actually neither identity is necessary. And like yeah. how the practice for me, has been about just the nuance of the in-between between those two yes. identities. How yes. it's okay, like the humanness of being in-between all the time. Yes. And how that's just a part of what it, the whole thing is. Yes. And, and it's hard to be in there. <laughs> it's uncomfortable to be in that in-between. And so that takes some, some skill, some development of skill. But in that in-between, I think that is where compassion lives. And that is where we can begin to, to find, you know, I think also creativity lives there, you know, so we don't, we don't come up with these rigid ideas about what's right and wrong, so, so creativity lives in there too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Other reflections, other thoughts? Well, perhaps something that you you could expand on a bit is the um, the virtuous feeling of blamelessness, because you know small things we do, but to feel comfort and satisfaction from those small things helps to balance that. I agree. There's, and that you actually brought up another topic too in my mind. So, I'll, I'll, so the, the the question of the the reflecting on um, when we do something skillful, when we we take action, or when we um, see that we're not harming, um, you know that that we're doing something that doesn't harm. There can be the, the, an active reflection on that. Um, the the Buddha calls it the bliss of blamelessness as we as we engage in the precepts as we engage in not harming our fellow beings, then we we can reflect on that and recognize oh this is this is beautiful that I'm not doing things that will actively create harm, and so that that is a piece that we can kind of appreciate about ourselves, and then and then the others the flip side of this too that I think asks. This is, this is the hard part, is that when, for example, we do something and we see, ah, you know, I didn't really need that thing. I, 
I didn't need to buy all of those things or something. And so we see, oh, I have overconsumed. You know, we, we, we recognize that. And that we, we instead, of, instead of feeling shame or guilt, part of what's going on there, I think, is the recognition that, yeah, I acted out of greed. I acted out of desire for something pleasant and... In our, in our exploration of this, we may begin to recognize that this, you know, buying that extra thing or, you know, doing, yeah, you know, buying that extra, that extra, you know, pair of pants or something or, or buying more food than I need and throwing food away, you know, just the amount of, of waste actually creates a lot of, um, you know, I read, I read that the amount of one-third of the food that's produced is culled because it doesn't look good. You know, it's crooked carrots or lumpy tomatoes or something. And so it just goes off to rot somewhere. And just the amount of land that's used to produce that food and the amount of energy that's used and the amount of carbon dioxide that goes in the air because that food is wasted... And so we too, we waste food and that, ha- that is food that is just not being consumed where it has been, it has been there has been energy used to, to create it. And so if we begin to understand the, the impact here, then as we see ourselves forget, as we see ourselves make the mistakes and, and overconsume or waste things, there may be a tendency to feel guilt and feel shame and feel like, ah, oh, I'm, I, that identity, kind of landing in that identity. But, but one thing that I think that's useful to recognize is that there's also a quality in there, in our hearts. And I've really started to look at this, that when we do something that hurts ourselves or someone else, and by extension hurts the planet, then our hearts will hurt. You know, and this is actually, we're designed this way. We're designed that our hearts will hurt when we see something that we've done has caused somebody else to hurt. That's actually a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that our hearts have that kind of resonance with pain. And so that's a learning, that's a kind of shift of mind that it's not a bad thing to feel the suffering when we've done something that has been harmful. It actually, what we tend to do is, is constrict around it, beat ourselves up, go into shame and blame. But if we can hold that with an open heart, that feeling of, oh, it feels like this, to have created suffering. It feels like this to have wasted. It feels like this. Then, then again, we're in that middle ground. Instead of, you know, being off and, oh, I'm going to be this, best, this great person or I'm, gonna, I'm this horrible person. We're in the middle ground where we recognize, yeah, I made a mistake. I acted out in a way that was not so helpful. And um, it's like this. It's like this. When we, when, we, when we feel the suffering in our hearts of the impact that we have, 
then we are much more likely to not do that in the future. There's this um, uh, science fiction story called Childhood's End by Arthur Clarke. I don't know if any of you have read this story, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's got this interesting, the beginning of it is very interesting um, premise where this kind of, there's a lot of different species in the universe and, you know, they're, the species in the universe are, are trying to kind of find those species that are capable of further evolution. And it's been deemed that potentially Earth is capable of further evolution. And so they're sent a, a, a species to kind of train the beings on Earth to, uh, to, to move in the direction of a further evolution of consciousness. And one of the ways that they do this is whenever any being is hurt, the being that created that hurt, even witnesses, feel the suffering of the people who are being hurt. And so the example, one of the examples was that, the, that, the, that um, the, there were bullfights and that as soon as the matador plunged the, um, the sword into the bull, every person who was in the arena felt as if they had been struck with that sword. They felt the suffering of the bull. And they said, instantly, that kind of entertainment stopped. <laughs> so, you know, essentially that that... that we, essentially what we do is we repress the pain. We are designed to feel that resonance, to feel that pain. And yet we don't like it, and so we kind of repress it. And so part of what the Buddha is asking us to do, the opening to suffering, this is what he's asking us to do, opening to our own suffering and the suffering of others. That's how transformation happens. When we, when we really feel into our impact on, each, on ourselves and others, that's when transformation happens. And now it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention.